0: Today I'm preaching from the passage of the Ten Commandments, and uh, this passage is all about the pursuit of holiness, and uh, that's really the theme of what this is about today, is the pursuit of holiness and what it means to be a holy people that are set apart, what it means to set your life in such a way that you are angled towards growing in holiness. In the old days, they had a term for that uh, that is kind of a, a bit of a funny word these days, but I think it's a beautiful word. It's the word pious. To be a pious person is a person that delights in following God's law. To, to pursue piety is to look at God and all the truth of who he is, to see the weaknesses of our own flesh, and then to position your life that this is the direction I want to go, failing as I will along the way, but I'm, over time, the trend line is towards God and his goodness, And so perhaps I can start today with a simple question to you before we even dig into the Ten Commandments. Does that describe you? Honestly. It's one thing to come to church on Sunday. It's one thing to be part of a small group. It's one thing to call yourself a Christian. But a Christian is someone who is marked by an overwhelming desire for godliness in their life. Does that describe you this morning? Do you know what that looks like to pursue holiness, to grow in that? Maybe it's a situation where you haven't really been trained on on what that ought to look like. Our passage today is a familiar one, Ten Commandments. Um, But I hope to breathe new life into it today. This is actually a passage over the last two, three years. The Lord's been doing a really good work. I've been learning all new things. I never knew about this passage before. The Ten Commandments have historically been known as the moral law. The moral law. Now, when we talk of the moral law, uh, we oftentimes speak of the inward sense of, of right and wrong, that all people everywhere, no matter what tribe you come from, no matter what culture you come from, knows. that There's something about being made in the image of God that not just Christians, but everybody, every human knows what's right and wrong. Everyone knows, unless something is severely wrong in your psyche, that killing is wrong. But how far does that extend? What else do we know is right and wrong? Well, the Christian response to that is the moral law. The Ten Commandments are the basis, it's the the plumb line of the human conscience of those made in the image of God, of what is right and what is wrong, that all people everywhere are accountable to. It's the moral law. The opening verse reminds us of this. It says, this is kind of the preamble to to the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember the context before we get to here. Before Moses gives them this law, who, who were these people? Well, it, God began the entire narrative after the fall, God called Abraham to be a people of the covenant, a people who he'd bestow his blessings on. And the idea was, I'll be a blessing to you, Abraham, so that you'll be a blessing to others. It was always missional in purpose. I'm going to pour my blessing into you, Genesis 12, so that you'll bless others. Eventually, the Israelites, Abraham, Abraham's children, became slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, they labored in slavery in Egypt. But then God miraculously delivered them, if you remember the story, through the Red Sea. This unbelievable miracle filled the signs and wonders in the sky. God delivers his people. And now they're in the wilderness. It's going to take 40 years for them to get to the promised land. But they are a new nation that's forming. And the question is, what rules and ethics are going to guide this people? what's going to set us apart from the nations? How are they going to see God among us? And God comes to them and he gives them the law. And the law begins with the Ten Commandments, okay? How is this nation going to be governed? Now, before we dig into each of the verses, I want some kind of, some, some ways for us to think about how we should think about the Ten Commandments. Number one, what are the uses of the Ten Commandments? What are their uses? Well, They have two different uses depending on who you're talking to. They have uses for a non-believer, someone who's not a Christian. They they have very important uses. And then they have different uses for someone who's a Christian. And in a room this size, certainly, there's there's a mixture of both of them in in here today. So first, for the non-believer, what does a non-believer do with the Ten Commandments? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith reads this when answering that question. It says, the moral law is of use to the unregenerate man. That's someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, To awaken their conscience, to flee from the wrath to come, and to drive them to Christ, or upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin, to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. Chris, leave that up there for just a moment. I see three different things in Westminster's response for the purpose of the law in a non-believer here. Number one, it awakens their conscience. What does that mean? When someone who's not a Christian sees the word of God And what God says is right and is wrong and is love and is wicked and is true and is wrong, when they see it from God's own mouth in the Ten Commandments, they're convicted and they suddenly say, I don't live up to that. That that is not me. And if that really is God and this really is me, then I need to find some kind of solution to my problem. And it ought to cause them to run to Christ. That's the second thing. It drives them to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? It's the law that drives us to the gospel. See, you can't really understand the gospel if you don't first understand God's righteousness and his holy law, that we've broken his law. The gospel is only sweet. Jesus' death on the cross is only precious news to those who have first looked into the holy righteous law of God and said, I don't live up, what can I possibly do before a holy God? And so the, the, the law of God, it, it awakens the conscience of an unbeliever. It drives them towards Jesus. But then number three, it leaves them inexcusable. Because all men and women will one day stand before a holy God on their judgment day. Everyone will die and we'll all stand before a holy God. And on that day, there will not be one person ever born who will ever have an excuse to give before God for breaking any of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because before they were written in stone, they were written into the conscience of the human heart. Everyone is aware that these are here. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone lives up to that awareness. You might be saying, well, I know some tribes and cultures that, that don't agree with, with some of the things that are written in the Ten Commandments. And I would affirm that some cultures and some nations have drifted because of the variety and degrees of sin that are, that are propagated throughout their cultural lives, that sometimes some of, them, some of the commandments are more suppressed than others. But when you dig deep, says the word of God, into the soul of man, And when it's exposed in honesty before a holy God, no one is without excuse. Three things the law of God does. And so I wanna give a desperate plea here before I go any further. If there's anybody who's not a follower of Jesus in this room today, as I'm preaching today through the law of God and I'm walking through the commandments, this is what I expect ought to be happening in your soul. And if as I preach through the law of God, you find yourself in that place saying, It isn't me. I'm not living up. I want you to run to Jesus. He's the hope where I'm getting to today. He is the one who makes a way for you, an unholy person, to one day stand before a holy God in safety. Now, what does it do for a regenerate man, for a believer? Well, it has a handful of things it does. Number one, it's not a merit system, right? So Christianity is not, here's the law of God. Now, get after it. Live more like God. Just work harder, be better, be stronger, and strive more. It's not a marriage system. You don't, you don't earn God's love by following the law. God's love is earned by one person on your behalf. His name's Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law perfectly, and all the amount of love that God could ever give in you has been given to you in full the moment you trusted in Jesus. That's the good news and the hope of the gospel. He can't love you any more than he already does. Now, this is good news in two directions. If you're truly a Christian, that means when you mess up, God is not a wicked father who loves you less. He is a good father who loves you the same amount before you messed up as he did after you messed up. That doesn't mean he doesn't have consequences for your mistake. It doesn't mean he, he might not discipline you, but he is a good father. If you've been adopted into his family through genuine faith in Jesus, he will always love you. He'll always you'll always be secure in Christ. Number two, so it's not a marriage system, but two things it does for a believer. Number one, It reminds us how much we're bound to Christ. Over and over, I told you the last two, three years, I've been on a deep dive on the Ten Commandments and on the law of God. And what I found is the law of God goes so much deeper into the inner recesses of the heart. You know, the the reformers, they had this, this language they would use, they called it the first motions of sin. This is interesting, first motions, technical language. But what it means is before your mind and heart and will is even applied towards thinking about a sin. Before that even happened, that first motion before you really even try to do anything, but just the corruption of your heart leads you in a direction that's sinful, leads you in a thought that's not of God, even that first motion is sinful. And they said, the beauty of the gospel is that the more you realize how deep your brokenness before a holy God goes, the deeper you see your own corruption, the more you say, wow, the gospel covers it all even the first motions of sin. So the more we know about the law, the more we love Jesus. You realize how much we're bound to him. But secondly, it then provides a path for a godly living. It provides a path for a godly living. I, I started by asking the question, are you hungering after being a godly individual? That, that's what Christian, I mean, isn't that what a Christian ought to do? I mean, if, just pretend you weren't a Christian for a little bit. Just for for a moment, say you're not a Christian, you're an outsider to the church. Wouldn't you at least think the people who go to the church probably are really hungry to live godly lives? At least that's what should be true of them. Well, the law provides the basis for what that godliness looks like. And so we constantly want to arrange our life to be more in line with God's law and all of its implications. God forbid we ever stumble across a law, realize we're breaking it, and then think nothing about it. That would be completely unbecoming of a Christian. That would be the antithesis of someone who's been filled with the Spirit, and that Spirit's then awakening the mind and the heart to know the things of God. That would mean we're in trouble. Second, let's talk about the structure of the commandments. This is important so you get a sense of them. There's 10 of them. Exodus chapter 20, there's 10 of them. When we talk about the structure of the Ten Commandments, the New Testament comments on the Ten Commandments quite a bit. Romans chapter 13 verse 10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, so in terms of the structure, the underlying ethic of all of God's laws is love. It's love. Now, that term is thrown around a lot in our culture, and and we have to make sure that when Christians speak of love, we're speaking of what God defines as love. Much of what culture around us and society around us defines as love is actually what the Bible describes as wickedness. And so we can't just say, well, love is whatever I want it to be. Love is some wishy-washy, undefined, unbound thing. No, God has defined love. And and the scriptures say love is the fulfillment of the law. So if we want to know what it means to love, where do we go? We can go to the law. And we can understand this is what it means to love. In fact, we can go to the one specifically who fulfilled the law perfectly, Jesus Christ, who's the perfect fulfillment of the law, and see it being lived out in a man, Jesus, and try to align our lives with him. During one encounter with the religious leaders of his day, Jesus was asked, which of the commandments of God was the greatest? It's a great question. What what commandments are the greatest? And Jesus responded by quoting two different passages from the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He says this, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love neighbor. As it so happens, Jesus is summarizing the Ten Commandments. There were two tablets of stone that Moses went up the mountain with and two tablets of stone that contained the Ten Commandments. The first tablet of stone contained the first four commandments and they describe how we are to love God. The next six commandments described how we are to love our neighbor. So when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, it's the Ten Commandments. It's love God, love neighbor. And you want to know how to do that? Read the Ten Commandments. The first four tell you how to love God. The next six tell you how to love your neighbor. It's quite simple. It's it's impossible to properly follow the love, the command to love your neighbor if you're not first following the command to love God. Let me say that again. The second table contains all the law of how to love your neighbor. But the condition of being able to love your neighbor is dependent on you first knowing how to love God. Why? Why? Because for God, he's just as much after the motivations and the heart as he is after the action. We see that all through Jesus' teaching. And so to truly love your late neighbor in a way that God defines as true love, you you must have that love of your neighbor flow from a love of God and that godly love then flowing into your neighbor's life. You see that? We love God, and that flows into a love of neighbor. Now, let's take a survey of the Ten Commandments. I have to do this quickly, and I could do multiple sermons on each one of these, so it's going to a quick survey, go through all 10 of them. And as I go through, I want you to be asking the question: Is this true of me, and is there anywhere where I've grown callous to the true law of God? First command: you are to have no other gods besides me." In fact, the language reads in verse three, "You shall have no other gods before me. Don't even have them in your presence." The first command, how are we are to love, is that we, ha- we worship the one true and living God. We do not worship any God. We do not worship false gods. We worship the one true and living God. And how are we to do that from Deuteronomy 6? We just saw that. We worship, worship him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of our affections, all of our motivations, we put our full mind towards thinking rightly about God and we don't allow anything into our midst that would distract us from worship of the one true God. Christians are not universalists, right? What's a universalist? A universalist is, is, is the one who believes that there's many different ways to God. It's all basically saying the same thing. No, that's breaking the first commandment. There's no other gods besides the God of the Bible. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water underneath the earth. This, is, this could be summarized as you shall have no idols. You shall worship no idols. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, directly, let's talk about this, no idols. Directly, this means, right, that we're not to make any kind of statue or image that becomes an emblem of our worship, No idols. I lived in Thailand where idolatry was all over the place. There were golden statues on every corner. People would bow down to them. It's a very in-your-face vision of what the second commandment is telling you not to do. No idols. Some some people actually take this further. In fact, many of my heroes believe that this is also saying that we are not to have any images of God in any way, including pictures and images of Jesus. Now, I'm gonna confess to you right now, I I wanted to be able to give you a really clear answer of where I stand on that today, and I can't. I'm really torn on it. I see an argument on both sides. And now here's what I'm doing. This is how my mind works. What I want the answer to be, because I have a number of children's storybook Bibles that I read to my kids that have pictures of Jesus in it. And what I want the answer to be is, that's fine, because that's normal to me. But that's not how I make my decision. I wonder, what does the Bible say? And if the answer is that the second commandment really does say no images of God, including images of Jesus, then I want to make sure that I'm living in holiness in accordance with the word of God. Now, I'm torn on it right now. I think there's an argument on both sides. And we have a number of children's storybook Bibles in my house, nativity scenes with little Jesus in the manger, right? Why would it be that God does not want any images of him? Well, because anytime you make an image of God, you're demonstrating one aspect of God but leaving out a thousand others. You might make an image of God that shows his strength and his might, but you lose his compassion and his mercy. You might make an image of God that shows him as this, this happy, cheerful guy, someone like on The Chosen, right? The TV show The Chosen. Everyone wants to be best friends with that guy. But but then, but then what are you missing? The wrath of Jesus against sin. Right? His, his righteousness and holiness. You can't have it all in one image. And so the second commandment, the argument is just don't make an image of God because you end up making it an idol. You end up choosing all the best parts of Jesus that you like and the worst parts you leave off. So no images. Let the word of God declare who he is. Additionally, we, when we speak of idols, it's not just physical idols that we're supposed to get out. But we've spoken in this church all the time about the idols of the heart. Some of us worship things in our life and don't even realize. We worship the pursuit of a career. We worship the money we have. Some of us worship our kids. We don't realize that the greatest love in our life is going to our spouse and our kids and not to God. Remember, Remember the, the rule? You really want to love others? Love God first. You, that, that has to flow through your love of God. Otherwise, it's become an idol. We turn really good things into idols. So we have to root out idolatry in our life. Third, third command. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is what this is like. Look, you don't insult my mom around me. My mom's in this room, okay? You don't insult my mom around me. It's not gonna go well for you. There's a handful of people on this planet who know that. It doesn't go well for you when you insult my mom. You you get part of my anger comes out towards you, right? How much more so towards the holy God who loves you? We don't play with the Lord's name as if it's something to be rubbed in the mud. We we don't just casually use the Lord's name as if it's a curse word. You know, the reformers, they actually, in in the Westminster uh, Catechism, they have a question that, that reads, is it okay if we hear the Lord's name spoken in vain around us and do nothing about it? And they say, no. No. If you're a Christian, and you hear the Lord's name spoken in vain around you, that ought to rub you such the wrong way that you can't help but speak up and say, that's God you're speaking about. Conviction yet? What about watching movies that use the Lord's name in vain and feeling no guilt about it, no conviction? Does that angst your soul? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Do you laugh at the joke? Sabbath. ruh Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. Of all the commandments, this this is the one that I... I just don't understand how the American church got to the place we're at. Almost everybody ignores this, and I'm gonna push into it for a little bit, okay? We, most of the American church are seven-day workers, and it's the fourth commandment of how we're to love God. We honor him by not letting work be an idol and by resting one day and by worshiping God on that day. It's a holy day, It's a day to fill your mind with the things of God. Break from work. You're a Christian. You're peculiar. You're salty. You're different. You're weird. You're an exile. You love God. You're a Christian. Six days you work. The seventh is for God. You fill it with God's people. You fill it with the word of God. You you change your routine up a little bit. You have extended time in the word, some lengthier time in prayer. You go on a prayer walk. Now, there are exceptions to this. We read that in the New Testament. I keep a, a rigorous Sabbath with my family. And and with God. But every once in a while, one of you will have something serious in your life. And Jesus says that when a sheep falls in a well, you know, the shepherd, even if it's a Sabbath, you gotta get the sheep out of the well. We're not legalistic about this. But do you keep a Sabbath? In this city, you will not get as, there's a good chance you won't get as far in your career. That's the cost. Are you willing to pay it? That's how you love God. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how you do it. Let's move to the second table. It starts off this way. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, well, what does this mean? Well, directly, it means honor your parents, right? This, this is pretty simple. Now, some of you have some parents that are pretty difficult to love and to honor, okay? What does it mean to honor them? Well, you gotta work that out with God. That might look different in all different circumstances. But, but you can't dishonor them. You, you can't forget about them. You can't just write them off. They're your parents. They were assigned to you by God. And so we have to look for ways to honor them. This means as they're aging, caring for them, being there for them, providing for them, respecting their decisions in our life. Especially to young children, you're to honor your parents What about circumstances where a parent is asking you to do something that dishonors God? That would be a situation where two of the commandments are in conflict with each other. How do you honor God and honor your parents in that situation? Well, Jesus talks on that. Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, now that's harsh language, but it's actually a way of speaking that was common in Israel. He's using hyperbole to describe a comparison. That, this is not uncommon. He's not saying you have to hate your mom and dad. He's saying you have to love God even more than you love your mom and dad. And that at times will mean to disobey their expectations. So for example, if your parents are putting pressure on you to behave in a way that's ungodly, well, your love of God says, okay, don't do what your parents say. You first love God. And now you gotta find a way to live in that situation. Now indirectly, this command has other implications as well. We see as this command is expanded throughout the rest of God's laws, that it's not only your direct parents it's speaking to, but it's all authority. You need to have a respect for governing officials. This is the, this is the fifth commandment. You need to have, have a respect for your elders. You need to have a respect for all the authorities that God has placed in your life. Even the word, do you, the word patriot, you know this? The, the word patriot, it comes from the root word paternus, right? Or how do you say the word is it paternus? The root word for father, And so, a healthy patriotism is a biblical concept, not a blind, just love your country for nothing, but a sense of, I want what's best for my nation, actually is fulfilling the fifth commandment. That's what the reformers used to teach. A healthy patriotism is fulfilling the fifth commandment. Obviously, that can be taken to ridiculous places. But godly people have wisdom to understand we honor the authorities over us. Number six do not kill, you shall not murder. Now, that should be pretty obvious for anyone who's pursuing holiness, right? Directly, what does this mean? Don't kill anybody, okay? That's a pretty good start. If you want to honor God, follow God, don't kill anybody. Now, this has some specifics to it. It's not speaking to government, right? This is speaking about premeditated planned murder. Government actually has a responsibility to carry the sword, which is a killing machine to punish the evildoer. So capital punishment, this is not that. I hear people make that mistake all the time. They're confusing the law of God towards an individual and God's responsibilities towards a government. It also is not speaking to military responsibilities, right? It's not speaking to that. The word of God speaks into military all the time. This sixth commandment is speaking about pre-planned, meditated murder. But Jesus then expands on this command. Matthew 5, 21 to 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So now Jesus is taking the law, which is a really practical do not kill, and he's showing you it's not just the action that God's interested in. God wants to go back to the heart and show you it was the heart that drove the action. And even when the heart is off and angry or calling someone a fool, that's a murderous spirit inside of you. And you're just as guilty as the one who murdered somebody. See, see, God's after the, the conditions of the soul. He wants to change your heart from the inside out. He doesn't just want moral conformity. He wants a new heart that actually lives towards a new morality. Number eight, the set, number seven, don't commit adultery. It says you shall not commit adultery, verse 14. Underneath this, now keep in mind, each of these are umbrella categories, okay? So when we speak about not uh, committing adultery, that encapsulates every one of God's laws that speaks into issues of sexuality, That's the structure of the entire book of Exodus and Leviticus. The Ten Commandments are the category headers, and then all the rest of the hundreds and hundreds of laws are working out how those Ten Commandments play out in case law throughout Israel in the Old Testament. That's what the law in the Old Testament is. So all the issues of sexuality are summarized under this Seventh Commandment of not committing adultery. This includes all fornication. That's sex outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, This includes all things like incest laws and rape laws, homosexuality laws, polygamy laws, and so on, that we find underneath the Old Testament. All are wrapped up underneath the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. God has defined sexuality as a good thing between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus then goes back, and he says, it's not just the outward conforming to the law I'm after. I want the heart. He says, Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in his eye, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, are you reading the words of Jesus as seriously as, as we ought to be? If you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already broken the commandment of Adultery? We live in a culture that if there's a scale, Vadi Bauckham says this, if, if there's a scale of one to 10 of sexuality, so one being like Amish, right? And then 10, 10 being, you know, I don't know, first century Rome, okay? We're, we, we live by virtue of waking up and walking outside at a four. By virtue of the clothing that our, 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 our city wears, by virtue of the billboards, the TVs, the ads, We're we're living in a four of the adultery scale just by breathing. Does it grieve you? I haven't even thrown in pornography into the mix yet, which is visiting a brothel in the privacy of your home. Is, Is it grieving you? Number eight do not steal pretty straightforward. This covers theft of all kinds. Um, It it includes deceitful actions towards another person, fraudulent actions towards another person. It's not just stealing a candy bar from the store or stealing a car. It actually, when this is worked out in the law, it, it talks about equal weights and measures, that you don't favor one party or another or kind of act deceptively to another. You don't try to make yourself look better in another person's eyes or kind of just rob them a little bit. I was talking to someone just this last week, and he was saying, "Rafe, do you think it's a, you think it's important?" Uh, I, I, someone got gifted a, uh, someone was given a, a coupon discount that was meant for them for a, uh, I don't know what it was, some registration thing. You think it's okay if I use it instead? I said, "Well, it depends." I said, "Do you want to break the eighth commandment and have a guilty conscience before God or not?" And he said, "You're being too serious. Uh, I'm not." God's pretty serious on this stuff. Netflix passwords and things like that, they get passed around, right? I'm just throwing, I'm asking myself, I'm I'm, I'm preaching a sermon to myself right now, like, am I concerned with that? Or is it, if I can get a freebie, and you know, it's a big corporation, so I can rob them, no one cares about that. Huh? I think the big guy does. Are we concerned? number nine, Ninth commandment instructs us not to bear false witness, which covers all kinds of lying. We don't, bear, we don't tell a lie against our neighbor. We don't lie to our neighbor. We don't, we, we don't deceive our neighbor. We don't make ourselves look better than we actually are. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't, when we retell a story, only tell the parts of the story that make the point we want to tell because that would be a lie. We tell the truth. We're, we're honest people. We don't deceive others. We don't lie to others. We don't bear false witness. We don't. God's justice, this is interesting. God, in the old days, if you had money in a court of law, you could buy a court, right? So you, you could, it's just how it worked. You, the people who had money were lords and they could buy a court. And then the poor people, basically, they didn't get any justice because you couldn't buy the court. But, but God came along with his law and said, you do not favor the rich or the poor in a court of law, right? So, so you can't buy a story. That's not how it works. God wants truth, Truth-telling at all times, that's justice. Number 10, and the most convicting of all, do not covet. And then he lists out all these things that we're not supposed to covet. What is coveting? It's a desiring in your hearts and it's not yours. So we're not even supposed to desire that which God has not assigned to us. In other words, be content with what God's given you. Just be joyfully content. Some will have more, some will have less. God is the orchestrator of all things, He's got your soul. He knows what he's doing. Just be content with what he's given you. And don't constantly be desiring the the newer, the better. Maybe if it was just a little different, or my circumstance was a little different, then I'd be happy. No, just be content. Don't covet those things. Okay, Ten Commandments. Let's reflect on this. Just let's take the last seven minutes here. Just reflect on this. I, I, I started by asking the question: how do we grow in our holiness? And part of the answer to that question is that we look into the law of God and then by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we're constantly asking ourselves, is there anywhere in my life that's out of alignment with God's standard? And then what we do is we allow that to grieve our heart because first and foremost, if you're out of alignment with God's standard, you're sinning against the holy God who you claim you love and that is corrupting the witness of your life and other people's lives around you and it's defaming the name of God that you say you love. And so you first grieve that and then you go to Christ and you say, Jesus, you have forgiven every one of my sins. I'm still, I still have part of my old nature in me. You, you changed me when I put my faith in Jesus. I now have a new desire, new nature, but I still have part of my old nature, and, and I make mistakes. I don't live up. But it's that battle. What most concerns me is that so often the battle's not even present to overcome sin. It's like we read the Ten Commandments, and then we go on our day and break three of them, and it's like not even an issue. That, that to me tells me one of two things. Either it says that this person is not a follower of Christ that does not have the Holy Spirit within them because there's no no sense of right and wrong or desire for godliness in their life. Or it tells me they they do have the Spirit of God in them, they are saved, they have a mustard seed of faith, but something's desperately wrong in their faith. We go through a life taking the Lord's name in vain or or laughing at jokes or the Lord's name being taken in vain and there's no struggle with it. No sense of, that's just wrong. You go through a life not taking a Sabbath, just knowing it's grieving the spirit, but I don't really care. I've got bigger fish to fry. No grieving? We go through a life breaking the adultery laws, right, left, and center, and there's nothing. James chapter two says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Make sure you understand this, look. We have all failed to live up to the law of God, myself included, Mother Teresa included. Right? Pick your most holy saint you can think of. Everyone failed to live up to the holy standard of God's law. The, the, The goal of this message is not to say, here's what you ought to be doing, so just live up to God's law, and then God will be pleased with you. No, no one could live up except for one. Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. Because when you broke any of them, in heart, mind, or action, you broke all of them, and you are accountable to God. And make sure you hear that before I tell you the good news. There will come a day where you'll stand before a holy God, and if you've broken any of these, you are accountable to the entire law, and your penalty will be separation from God eternally. But God sent Jesus to fulfill the law on your behalf, and if by faith you believe that Jesus died for you, then all of your sin is forgiven. Every one of it, even the deepest one of your heart, but you don't stay there. See, this is what the beauty of the gospel is. The gospel, then, is that you get a new heart that begins to desire things in a whole new way. This is the sign. In fact, the New Testament calls this fruit of the spirit. Part of the fruit is, now I desire to follow God's law. Now I want to do it God's way. And part of the fruit is, I'm going to be grieved whenever I find something in my own life that's not not becoming of God. One of the Puritans I love to read, Walter Marshall, he wrote it this way. The Ten Commandments bind us still. How do they bind us as Christians? To show us what duties are holy, just, and good, well-pleasing to God, and to be a rule for our conversation. The result of all this is that we must still practice moral duties as commanded by Moses, but we must not seek to be justified by our practice. You see the difference here? You see the difference? We're not justified by following the law of God. We could never do it. No one ever lived up. So if you've broken these, look around the room and look at a whole bunch of people that have broken the same laws as you have. But then we look to Jesus and we say he's forgiven all of it. Now, there's some really good news hidden in here, and I want to speak it to you before I close. Some of you right now are going through a season where you are in a cycle of sin that you just cannot get out of. You just keep, it's like a dog returning to his vomit. You just keep, that's how the scriptures refer to it. You keep going over, back to the same sin, even though you know it's destructive, even though you know that God hates it, and you hate it, but you keep finding yourself in that place. Can I give you a a sweet word of hope? That sense inside of you that knows that it's wrong and that grieves over it is a beautiful sign of the Holy Spirit at work in you if you've put your faith in Jesus. That sign of the battle means God's at work. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You push into your faith in Jesus. We don't need more rules and and methods and apps and and, and books. Here's what we do. We we make Jesus so big in our sight, so beautiful by studying him and reflecting on him and praying and and just enjoying him and and, and leaning into the, the saints And Jesus becomes so wonderful that what happens is all of a sudden that sin that you just couldn't get out of, all of a sudden it looks disgusting to you. Because Christ is so magnified in your life. You look back at the sin that you once thought you couldn't get out of and you're like, how would I ever even enjoy that? That's just gross. I've experienced that. And God desires that in your life. We don't need more apps and programs. We need a bigger vision of Jesus and his gospel that transforms the human heart. And then church, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That means we push in. We do not settle for a life of wishy-washy Christianity, no piety in our life. We're Christians. Jesus went to the cross to rescue you from sin, Satan, and death. Live a life that honors him. Follow his law. Can I pray for us? What I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna pray a pastoral prayer over us. In fact, let me invite you to stand up. And then we're gonna flow into a a time of worship. Our band will sing two songs, but what I really desire in this space is, uh, I I wanna make this a a, a space of prayer where if there's anything that God's wrestling with you on, where you've been breaking God's commands and you didn't realize it, and you need to run to Jesus, I want you to have the freedom to be able to do that. There'll be some deacons around the room, and I always encourage us during this time, get out, out of your chair. Go find a deacon. Let them pray with you. There is power in brothers and sisters praying for one another. And if you're just comfortable praying where you are or singing, great. Make this a time of prayer and worship. Heavenly Father, we love you. We confess, God, that we have all broken your law. No one is good. No, not one. Only Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. But the sweet news of the gospel is that you've forgiven all of our sin. And we receive that by faith. It's nothing we've done. It's all what Christ has done. And we want a bigger picture of Jesus. We want to live according to your righteous rules. God, I pray for those who are struggling in cycles of sin. I pray for those who are just returning over and over again to that which is breaking them. God, I pray that you would give them freedom in Jesus' name today. I pray that this would be that day where they say no more and where there's just new power in their life, by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome overcome sin that maybe has been plaguing them for years I'm thinking of sins of adultery and pornography, of false sexuality. I'm thinking of sins of failing to keep a Sabbath and idolatry. God, would today be the day that you break those chains that are enslaving them? And would they experience freedom right now in Jesus' name? Now, not later on, not tomorrow, not in a few weeks, not after they think about it more. Now, while the Spirit's at work in this room, I pray for freedom. For freedom, we've been set free. No longer bound by the shackles of the law, but freed in Christ Jesus, who gave his life for us. Jesus, I pray for that freedom right now. I pray for the boldness, God, to be able to declare to you the depth of our sin, that it's worse than we know, and that that you would implant in us a faith that says the gospel is even greater than the depth of our sin. God, I pray for those who have for too long been stuck in sin, taking the name of Jesus, with no concern whatsoever for godly living. God, if there's anyone in this room who's been a hypocritical Christian, someone who's a Christian by title only, but no holiness, may they not leave today without realizing that is not Christianity, and they were not a Christian. But they, they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior today and begin a new life of following hard after Christ, messing up every step of the way, yet being picked up by your grace every step as well. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Church. Pray as you need, worship as you need, this space.